0: It's been heartening to hear that while the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world, Hawaii has been heading in the opposite direction. In fact, they've achieved the goal of having no young women in jail at all. Their focus instead is on programs that help heal and rehabilitate often traumatised young women, many of whom are Indigenous Hawaiian. So to tell us more about this and how it's worked in practice, I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Kavika Patterson, Administrator of the Hawaii Youth Correctional Facility, and Meeta Chesney-Lind, a pioneering feminist criminologist and Emeritus Professor at the University of Hawaii. Meeta, to to you first, this is a very significant achievement of Hawaii's, isn't
1: it? It As far as we can tell, it's a little bit iffy, but I believe we're the only state in the country that has achieved this remarkable task. And I really hats off to Mark because he'll be able to tell you how incredibly hard he had to work because traditionally girls are a smaller portion of the juvenile justice system and a particularly small part of those that are incarcerated And small numbers doesn't necessarily mean small problems. In fact, in some ways, girls can really be tough to incarcerate, again, because small numbers. So it's hard to justify a separate facility and that kind of thing. And I know Hawaii's feminist history. We were the first state in the country to offer women safe and legal abortion. We were the first state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. We also are the birthplace of Patsy Mink, who was the chief architect and author of Title IX, which, of course, is a huge feminist achievement. And it basically is the federal law we count on to protect women from Sex discrimination, which prior to Title IX, was completely legal. It was okay for law schools to accept no women or just a handful of women.
0: Mark, congratulations. You've been aiming for zero girls' incarceration, and uh, you've bloody well done it.
2: Yes. Aloha, a <laughs> Philip. It's, it's been an interesting journey, and, and it came upon us suddenly to the point where we're like, oh, my God, it happened, <laughs> and then you realize it's achievable. It's not like you achieve it and it's done. The work is continuing and to see how do we continue to move the model forward. And just to clarify, Philip, we're not saying that the social issues are resolved. What we're saying is there is another model rather than punitive.
0: Let's make the point that about 12 years ago, you hit the height of incarceration, which was about 30 or 40 girls. I guess most of them were just uh, there because they'd run away or were truants.
1: Yes. Technically, you needed a law violation in order to be incarcerated at HYCF, but in the main, it would be five or 10 or 50 arrests for runaway, one arrest for shoplifting, and she'd be in the facility. So if you looked at her behavior in total, she was a runaway kid or a a status offender, but that one law violation kicked her into the category that would permit her incarceration.
0: Mark... 30 or 40 young females doesn't sound like a lot. But, of course, Hawaii has a quite a small population, doesn't it?
2: Yes. When you really look at the 0 to 18 population in Hawaii, they, they make up about 21% of the total in the 2020 census that we've taken here, which is about 300,000. So when you look at 30 to 40 incarcerated girls, you're really looking at a lot of positive things that are happening in the system that are providing uh, treatment for the issues that arise in our, in our state systems. And so, so the focus was really, how do we just focus on that 30 to 40?
0: And so, Mark, the ones that end up in the justice system are, are from the most disadvantaged families, lots of trauma, physical, emotional, sexual abuse. Yes. Now, Mark, boys are incarcerated, of course, but those numbers aren't enormous, are they? And I know you're you're working on that as well.
2: Yes. The boys, traditionally, there's more boys in the system in Hawaii than there are girls, but their numbers have decreased significantly as well from 12 Mm -hmm. years ago. Today we're at 16 boys incarcerated. Wow.
0: Back to you, Meeda, this move to get girls out can be traced back to a rather magical occasion. You're giving a talk, and a particular judge is in your audience.
1: I was reviewing Hawaii statistics on characteristics of girls in the detention centre and characteristics of the girls in HYCF. And, of course, the majority of these girls were there essentially for running away from home. But I had in the room Judge Browning, and he had then just sort of taken over the juvenile court here in the islands. And he certainly was, I think, a little chagrined to hear me say that, you know, here we were really an outlier with the rest of the country trying to get status offenders out of the juvenile justice system or runaways, if you will. And here's Hawaii with loads of them in the detention center and loads of them at HYCF. And so Judge Browning really undertook to do a uh, major—he turned the juvenile court around, I think, in major ways. And that leadership, along with Mark being at HYCF, means Judge Browning really reinvented juvenile justice and brought in national experts to help the state see how costly, especially incarceration— was
0: to the state. He's an absolutely heroic figure and obviously highly regarded because he he goes on to become head of the overall judiciary.
1: Yeah, he's a real leader. And we've been without that. We we needed someone in courts because for years, I mean, I'm going back to several of uh, previous heads of HYCF. Including, I'll go back to my, my good friend who's no longer with us, uh, Wayne Matsuo. In Wayne's dream was to depopulate HYCF, and particularly girls and boys. That was his goal. That was why he built as small a facility as he did. And, you know, he was just subverted by the family court judges who really wanted to lock kids up and uh, saw him as being a problem because he wasn't an enthusiastic uh, partner with them in, in that um, activity. Of course, so,
0: some of the judges he, put kids in the slam of, with, in a sense, good intentions. They saw it as a safer place for them.
2: Yes, and and that was the discussion really with the judiciary in my tenure here is because a lot of the girls were coming to me for their their own safety. Mm -hmm. because they would be absconding they would be running away and and normally they run away back into things that will be harmful for their safety so the judges would bring them and say mark we want you to hold her for her safety and i would say we're designed for public safety we're not designed for her and the punitive Mm model is for is designed for public safety and not for the individual safety so what does individual safety residential look like
0: Rather than seeing kids criminalized for their homelessness, you, Mark, emptied a cottage, unlocked the doors, and said, stay here. Yes.
2: And, and that was the whole idea. Everybody was thinking, oh, the warden Patterson just wants to, you know, work himself out of a job. I said, no, I want to change the model.
0: Yeah. Mark, in a sense, is a sort of a probation officer on an unprecedented yeah. scale, isn't he?
1: Right. Well, you know, I think for years, as Mark said so eloquently, our juvenile justice system has really, even though they were talking about kids' safety, they were really embracing a punitive model. And the problem was our youth facilities have not been safe spaces for kids. We've had Mm -hmm. scandal after scandal, especially with reference to the girls, you know, sexual assaults of the girls, real serious problems. So the idea, while it you know, sometimes sounds appealing in, in polite circles to talk about we're holding her for our own safety, the reality across the country in terms of training schools and youth facilities is that they are not safe places for kids typically. It's very hard to keep them safe, as Mark can tell you, because that's his job now. And so really what we need to do is find kids safe places to be that are not prisons. And, you know, that's what Mark's achieved. He's gotten youth-serving agencies to put together programs and settings for the kids that can't stay with their families. For And usually they can't stay with their families for the the reasons that you've already enumerated. They're victims of physical abuse. They're victims of sexual abuse at the hands of their family members, unfortunately. So they can't go home. We need to have another place for them, and we need it to be a safe place, but we don't need to have it be a locked environment.
0: Before we go back to Mark, uh, Mita, you make the point that uh, homelessness leads to offending, often necessitates offending, doesn't it?
1: Well, you know, I've talked about this in things I've written called criminalizing girls' survival strategies because what happens is, like runaway slaves and girls were criminalized for running away from abusive and damaging home lives. And so now they're on the streets. And unfortunately, as, as Mark mentioned, the streets are not particularly safe places for girls, but neither are their homes. So we needed a, well, we needed many settings, but again, because girls have been forgotten in a juvenile justice system that was really focused on boys and also focused appropriately on public safety girls just sort of got shoved to the side and would spend long chunks of time sitting in in cells waiting for placement. Um, So in very damaging and stigmatizing environments. So that's been the pattern.
0: Before I I return to Mark, I wanted to make the point that if you're homeless, you often have to steal food. Suddenly, suddenly you're a criminal.
1: Well, that's how you get the shoplifting arrests they're stealing food. You know, there are youth outreach programs that are in certain of our neighborhoods. We have thousands of kids that are still, until very recently, being arrested for running away from home. And you can't go to school if you're on the streets. You know, there's nobody to feed you. So you have to worry about that. And that's where the kids start getting into dangerous circumstances and start committing minor offenses like shoplifting, but also involved maybe in juvenile prostitution to get money so that they can survive.
0: Your guiding principle is a therapeutic approach, isn't it, instead of punitive?
2: Yes, that has been the the foundation of my leadership, you know, for the last 20 years of my career. And I'm I'm going to give you an example of therapeutic. Uh, When we were able to close the girls' cottage because our numbers were so low Four or five years ago we opened a therapeutic uh, program that was used as an assessment center for victims of sex trafficking minors when we went therapeutic we 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 pushed hard that it wasn't going to be a secured facility it was going to be unsecure which means it wasn't going to be like a prison yeah so we changed ourselves to rooms we took all the metal doors off we put wooden Mm. doors and the girls could leave if they wanted to, but nobody can go get in because it was locked from the outside. So a lot of people were saying, well, they're going to run away. And so what we found out in the, in the first year, in the first 24 to 48 hours, 90 percent of the girls did walk away. Hmm. And those were planned walkaways. They had safety plans in place. They were given money. They were given contact information and, and all of that. What we didn't realize is that within the next two weeks, 80% of them returned on their own. And the evidence-based practice is going to tell you when they have choice, you're going to see more success in the treatment or in in, in the, the fact that they weren't being held there against their will. They wanted to stay. They're going to come back and they're going to stay. And many of them came back and would continue to come back whenever they needed help.
0: Mark, one yeah. of the, the things that made the problems more complex is that many of the Trouble Kids are not from the main island, are they?
2: You know, the, we, we have the statewide issues that the girls are going to that is common. It's just that the main island, which is the county of Honolulu, uh, you have a million people on this island. This is where all the businesses are, This is where all the services are, all the community, the nonprofit organizations that are dealing with the issues successfully. So in the last several years, the majority of the girls I had were not from Oahu, but were from the neighbor islands because they lacked the services. They lacked the community nonprofits that were providing services for the state systems. And so a lot of focus was going, how do we get the legislature involved to help provide the resources for the other counties? to up their levels of services to stop the flow of the girls to the main island. And that's where we've been successful.
0: Mita, you've already told us about the proud feminist history of Hawaii, yet there's a paradox because uh, Hawaii may be leading on this, but it did choose, after all, not to sign up to a federal act aimed at deinstitutionalization of juveniles.
1: That's right. Mark's orientation towards this issue is, well, both he and Judge Browning turned the corner and joined, I think, the rest of the national conversation on the deinstitutionalization of status offenders. But previous to that, Hawaii actually didn't when the JD Act of 1974 was passed, which was a federal law that encouraged and and gave resources to states to deinstitutionalize status offenders, Hawaii didn't participate in the act. And so early court leaders were really opposed to these efforts, and, and Hawaii stayed out for several years. And this is what shows the importance of leadership. When we have different leadership at the Hawaii Youth Correctional Facility with a different view of the world and a different treatment understanding that kids do better if they have choice, then you see success. When you have that more punitive system, you have all the headaches that come with that and you don't have kids succeeding. You have kids that basically get stigmatized at the youth facility and then they turn up. I think we did a study at a research center that I was a part of and HYCF had a adult recidivism rate, meaning those kids that went to HYCF, of like over 70%. So basically the kids that went to the youth correctional facility turned into adult offenders. That's
0: a universal (laughs) experience, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And it raises into doubt whether incarceration is ever any good. Mark, you are a native Hawaiian man. That must be a part of what motivates you, what drives you.
2: Yes, I, I would say it does. My career began with how how do I enter into the system uh, and, and be a positive influence on knowing that a lot of my peers were were ending up in prison, you know, mm-hmm. and why didn't I why didn't I end up in prison? And so, really going in there and trying to see what the problem was and. And what we say is we as we battle for our, our positioning in Hawaii as native Hawaiians is really trying to learn the system and then become a leader in the system to benefit more people here. And and that's what I've done. Yeah.
0: It's look, it's been a great privilege to talk to you both. So Mark Kavika Patterson Administrator of the Hawaii Youth Correctional Facility and Mita Chesney-Lind, Feminist Criminologist and Emeritus Professor at the University of Hawaii. And thanks for what you've achieved. It's an inspirational story with lots of relevance to us in Australia.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate the time.
1: Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy.